it is on, huh? Why don't we take a moment and stand and kind of stretch? This will be your last chance until midnight. Okay, let's, uh, let's begin, please. Would you kindly turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? far we'll get this evening in our study of the seventh chapter, but what I'd like to do is interact with you on some thoughts, and I want to, at the outset, uh, ask that you interact with me at any level you'd like. If I sound a little bit uh, nasal or uh, hard to talk, it's because I've developed some kind of a uh, allergy to something in the air that... Uh, it's really got my nose running, and I've got a antihistamine I took, but it's still um, not doing all that well, so forgive me. But what I'd like to invite you to do is to interact with me as we go along tonight, and if there's a point that you'd like to have clarified or a question you'd like to ask or a disagreement you'd like to register, I want you to feel very free to do that, and we'll, uh, we'll simply go at whatever pace we... Uh, decide to go, and there's uh, nothing in the rule book that says we've got to finish the uh, seventh chapter tonight, we'll get as far as we get, quit and go to bed. So with that in mind, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, once again, we want to register our dependence upon you, reminding you that except the Lord build a house, we labor in vain that build it. I know that doesn't come as a surprise from you. As a matter of fact, you're the one that said it. But we throw these words back your way to let you know that we're aware of that fact and to ask in the name of Jesus that you do some building tonight. In each of our lives individually, affect the change that would maximize your glory and our best interest as from one degree of glory to next, we're conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. From the beginning of chapter 7 until the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul deals with a series of questions and answers. Evidently, in some correspondence or feedback that he had received, a number of questions had surfaced in the congregation there in Corinth. And so these last chapters, 7 through 15 or 16, deal with those questions and then Paul's answer to them. Most of them are problems in the church of Corinth. Now chapter 7 is a very interesting chapter, but it's also a very difficult chapter. It's difficult because of its content and because of the way he words some things. For example, in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Verse 5, he says, concerning husbands and wives, don't refuse or defraud one another. In verse 8, he says, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. That is, don't get married. Verse 14 is an interesting verse. 
It says the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Then note with me verse 25. These are by way of illustration. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath attained the mercy of the Lord to be faithful. He says, I've got no command from God. Then where did he get it? And then verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. Now these are hard to understand passages and possibly even harder to apply. Note with me that Corinth is an immoral city. It's a city of decadence. And Paul is addressing needs in accordance with that setting. And so what he does is he mixes the commands with some suggestions. On one hand, he'll say, this you have to do. And on the other hand, he'll say, you don't have to do this, but I highly recommend it. And we'll deal with those differences. For example, he gives a, suggest a suggestion in verse 1, it's good not to touch a woman. In verse 28, he says, you can do whatever you want, but I would spare you. In verse 35, he says, now this is for your profit, not that I can add a burden to you. In verse 38, he says, you can do whatever you want, but... You'll do better if you do what I tell you to do. In verse 40, he says, again, you're free to do what you want, but you're happier in the Lord if you follow my suggestions. So it's obviously a chapter filled with a lot of suggestions, not just commands. But these suggestions should not cause us to lose sight of the biblical absolutes that undergird the chapter. Paul is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is Spirit-led, and even the suggestions that he makes to us, and we've got to take them with that understanding. In my study, I divided the chapter into four sections. Verses 1 to 9, I entitled, The Necessity of Marriage for Some. In verses 10 to 16, the sanctity of marriage for all. 17 to 24, called to live as God leads. And 25 to 40, the advantages of celibacy. Now, from these sections, I personally, in my own study, derived eight principles. Most deal with the question of how to relate to the opposite sex. Follow along in whatever translation you have as I read verses 1 through 9, the necessity of marriage for some. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission, and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Now, verse 1 contains the first principle. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the context, obviously, is immorality. Because in verse 2, he says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. So the issue is fornication. But I want you to note here that the word is touch. Now, some translations distort that and say it is good not to fornicate. 
And though that is the context, that is not, I repeat, that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, by way of drawing attention to what it is he's saying, let me note with you that when it comes to the question of immorality, there are basically three gates that the Bible suggests that you can go through. The first gate is found in Job 31.1. Job says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? And the first gate that you can walk through is the eye or the mind gate. I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Or to put it another way, Job says, if I'm not going to look, then why think? If I'm not going to allow my, my, my eyes the luxury of wondering, then what's the use of thinking about it? Let me remind you of something I'm sure you all know, guys, and that is that the mind is the most potent sex organ in a man's body. The battle is won or lost in our thought life. I don't know much about psychology. I minored it with it or in it when I was in college and just got close enough to know that I didn't know anything about it. But I remember they talked in psychology about a deal called psychological acceptance. And that is if you massage an idea with your mind and embrace it psychologically, invariably, when the opportunity presents itself to commit the act, the barriers are destroyed and you will in fact commit it. You embrace it mentally, it's just a matter of time before you practice it. Now, I believe that to be true. And I want to say to you that I have sex drives as strong as any man's that I know. That's kind of a hard thing to evaluate because how do you know whether yours are stronger or as strong as anybody else's? I just know that there are some men who seem to be able to be celibates a lot easier than I would be able to. And I wrestle with my thought life and I wrestle with sex just like any other man in this room. But I want to tell you something. The thought of falling in this area so terrifies me that I made a covenant with God that I would never mentally cheat on my wife. Because I know that if I begin to do that, it's just a matter of time before the opportunity will present itself and I will be left defenseless. And I need not remind you guys that there's a tremendous amount of carnage out there right now simply because guys, for one reason or another, have left their defenses down and have allowed themselves first to think about it and then to fall into it. Remember, the emotions are the obedient servant of the mind. You think about something, and you get angry. You decide not to think about it, the anger leaves. The emotions follow the mind. And the mind is the obedient servant of the will. The mind obeys what the will dictates. That is the reason why our Lord Jesus took the command to love and removed it from the emotions to the arena of the will. A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another. You look in the dictionary, the dictionary does not define love volitionally. It defines it emotionally. But God says, I know better, because that's how I made you. And the emotions follow the mind, and the mind follows the will. That's the reason why Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes, why then should I think upon a maid? Now, I want you to notice that Job's is an example. He doesn't say, you should make a covenant with your eyes. He doesn't say, God expects everybody to make a covenant with their eyes. Job simply says, I'm going to take you into my confidence. I'm going to tell you what I did. I made a covenant with mine eyes. That's an example. That's the first gate that you're going to elect to walk through or not walk through. The second gate is found here in verse 7. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the second gate. The touch gate. Now again, let me underline that that Greek word, if you're in the Greek buff and want to know what it is, is haptomai. It means to touch. 
For example, it's the word that was used in the Gospels when the woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed. It's to put your fingers on something or to make physical contact with something. Now, I don't need to remind you guys that to keep this statement of the Apostle Paul in verse 1 is double tough in our society. We have developed a hugging society. Now, it's fairly new. I know that 34 years ago when I came into the kingdom, you know, we didn't hug one another like we hug today. I mean, everybody hugs everybody. It's unbelievable. And I don't know why that is. I'm not a sociologist, and maybe you understand. Possibly it's because high-tech is compensated by high-touch. I don't know. But we do have a great deal of hugging going on. I want you to notice here in verse 7, again, Paul, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul does not call this a command. It's a suggestion. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. It does not say you absolutely cannot do it. It's like Paul says in Romans chapter 14, it is good neither to eat flesh nor drink wine nor do anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. It doesn't say you can't drink wine. It doesn't say you can't eat flesh. It's just good not to do it if it gets you into trouble. And the Apostle Paul says, I want to tell you, it is good not to touch a woman. Don't have to obey it. But I want to tell you, says Paul, it's better for you if you don't do it. Now, I agree that this is a suggestion. But if you have a heart for God... And if you agree that God led the Apostle Paul to write it, then why not obey it? Why not simply do what he says? Keep your hands to yourself. Now, obviously, guys, obviously, if you want to, you can push this to the extreme of being ludicrous. You can make the commandment look stupid. Just like Eve tried to do in the Garden of Eden, what God said to her, don't eat of the fruit. And when she said to the serpent, God doesn't want me to even touch it, much less eat it. And all she was trying to do is show how unfair and ridiculous the command was. And you can do the same with this. For example, here's a girl falling, and you step aside, crash. <laughs> Don't touch a woman. And you can make it look dumb if you want to. But I also know you can take it to heart if you really want to. The choice is yours. The third gate is what I call the pornos gate. Now, the pornos is the word we get pornography. And that's the word that deals with all forms of immorality. You find it, for example, in chapter 6 and verse 9. In verse 9 he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That word for fornicators is pornos, those who commit immorality. Illicit sex of any kind. Now, this gate is the gate of immorality. The first gate of the eyes and the mind was an example. The second gate of the touch was a suggestion. But gentlemen, this gate is a command. To break it is to get on the backside of God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that he will judge these kind of people. And he says in verse 10 that they shall not I repeat, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's pretty straightforward on that. Now, guys, I cannot tell you that you cannot walk through gates 1 and 2. But I can tell you that you'd better not walk through gate 3. Now, between gates 2 and 3, there is a wilderness filled with minds. And you're on your own as you try to make your way across it. 
And I can't tell you where that line is crossed whereby you leave the second and walk through the third. But I want to tell you, if you walk through the third, you are in serious trouble with your God. And if you elect to walk through gates one and two, and you're not forced to do it on the basis of the Bible, but if you elect to do it, you're on your own in that wilderness between gates two and three. And I want to remind you about verse 18 of chapter 6. Paul says, flee pornos. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth pornos sinneth against his own body. And Paul says that there's something uniquely different about the sin of fornication or immorality. And I thought a lot about it, and I don't understand it, but there's something, there's something different about it, something mystical about sex that is not present in any other form of sin. Most people who walk through this gate never seem to recover in their Christian experience. Like King David, for example. After the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he was forgiven, he was restored, but his kingdom and his life were never the same. He never was able to pick up the cadence. He was never able to regain the momentum. Things were constantly out of step. He never could pick the thing back up again for the rest of his life. And I don't know what your experience is, guys, but I have seen men fall into this sin, and I see that happen to them. They somehow never fully recover. Now, I'm elaborating on this first principle a little bit more than I am going to do on the rest of them because I think it's such a critically important area, particularly in the day and age in which we're living. So I want to make some suggestions to you. Now remember, these are not laws, these are not rules, these are simply suggestions. You can take them or leave them. But if you want to avoid pornos, let me suggest these for your consideration. Number one, in empty hotel rooms. Opposite sex. Sure. Yeah. Friends, or take a buddy along, or do something, and watch the wrong kind of television, and your mind begins to fantasize, but just understand the perils in living that kind of a lifestyle. I am not, and there are times when I have stayed in hotel rooms by myself, and I want to tell you guys, daughters or your wife, obviously. But there is a very... And I simply say that if a girl needs help, problem counseling. If somebody comes and says, what do I do with my taxes? You know, just the closer you get, the easier it is to fall. You know, and there, I'm talking about anything else. The way they drive their cars, the way they ski, whatever it is they do on the edge. Number five, never be alone with the opposite sex. Number six, never mentally cheat on your spouse. And number seven, don't touch women. Now, guys, I cannot guarantee that I'll never fall into sin. But I want to tell you straight out that if I violate these suggestions, I run a high, far greater risk of falling into it than if I don't. Any questions or comments before we go to principle number two? How is that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they can't get out of it. 
I think if I were a pastor and I pulled my elders together or my deacons as the case may be and I said, gentlemen, I do not want to counsel women for the obvious reasons. Give me some suggestions as to how to handle this. I don't think they would say to you or to me, Henriksen, as long as you're the pastor, you will counsel women. Now guys, I want to tell you that most the wives of most of the men that I know across the country view me as being cold and aloof. And I've heard men tell me that their wives think that I tend to be that way. But I have never met a man yet who has said to me, you know, I really wish you'd do more hugging of my wife. Never happened. Yes. Well, verses 6, chapter 6, 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. He mentions it twice, at the beginning of verse 9 and at the end of verse 10. First of all, I didn't say it. So any argument you have is with Paul. I know a man well, as a matter of fact, I know several, unfortunately, well, that have fallen into this sin of immorality. But the guy I'm thinking of particularly said to me, he said, well, Henriksen, once saved, always saved, and I'm obviously a Christian, so therefore, even though I am fornicating, committing adultery against my wife, I'm still a believer. That's the promise of God. That's what grace is all about. And I told the gentleman, I said, you can think whatever you'd like to think, but I want to tell you, your soul is in peril. And I don't know your eternal condition. I know the theological arguments, but I want to tell you, nobody plays chess with God and wins. Don't ever wake up in the morning and think you're smarter than God. Because He'll beat you every time. I don't care what options you think you have got, God can count higher than you. And I don't know. Say, you can say to me, Henriksen, I can go ahead and fornicate and I am secure with God. And I say, feel free. But just remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And the man that does this, I can tell you, his soul is in peril. I don't stand as judge, but I do stand as one who can quote the verses of Scripture to him. Do you feel like right there that the inherit the kingdom of God is salvation? I don't know what else I'd call it, Scott. Yes. I sure do. But I also know, guys, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I do know that it's easy for a man to say to himself, she looks awfully good. I think I'll go ahead and massage the relationship and hope to bring her to bed and afterwards come to God and ask for forgiveness. Proverbs says, can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? And I want to tell you guys, don't do it. Don't do it.
I just I say to you, don't do it. Can you give me a two minute background of your lifestyle prior to becoming a Christian? I came to Christ, David, when I was nineteen years old. I came out of a totally non Christian background. It was not a good life. I carry scars. See, and that's the thing, guys. See, the scars never go away. And there are times, even now, when my mind will rehearse stuff in that back and I am ashamed of it before God and, and that, that emotion, you know, comes surging through your body that, well, you know if you carry the scars yourselves. It's just a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. It's just putrid. The stakes are simply too high. Just don't do it. There's no reason why you have to. Don't do it. Stay away from it. Tell him that restoration is his. The man who sins and repents is to be restored. But, as we've already talked about, the scars don't go away. You live with the consequences. Through eternity, those consequences, guys, do not end with death. You take that into eternity with you. Yes? Can we back up to uh, verse 1 in chapter 7? Yes. Just a moment for a second. Yes. Two questions. One, is, is that... Uh, in terms of your relationship with your wife, those of us who are married, does that have any application to the relationship with the wife? Because no. That, okay, that's out of it. Obviously, it would, have, it would have application to relationships outside of our marriage. Well, I think my mother, my daughters, my wife, my family, obviously, is excluded right. from that. All right, second question that kind of ties into that. What about the holy kiss? I thought a lot about that, Scott, and I don't know what to think about it. Except to say that in light of 1 Corinthians 7, let men kiss men and women kiss women. As Hank said, thus endeth the holy kiss. Yes. Okay, the question was... How about the holy kiss? And I said that in light of 1 Corinthians 7, I don't know. I've asked myself that question. I don't know how to answer it. It may be that Paul means let men kiss men and women kiss men. I mean women. And Hank says, that's the end of the holy kiss. Yeah, the French do it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, Paul repeats the same thing in 19 through 21. The same way I would 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. He says they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes. 
1 John 3, 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Yes. That, that, that opens a whole other question, Steve. He says in chapter 1, If we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I think that the difference between the first chapter and the third chapter is the difference between willful sin versus sin that is not willful. Paul, I think what John is saying in 1 John 3, 6, that if I go around willfully sinning, giving my life to sin, then it's because I'm not a child of God. Yes? In light of all this, how do you uh, interpret or how do you look on a relationship that Jesus had with many women to where he allowed them to come up and physically caress and, and touch? Um, and we being followers of Christ, uh, we're to turn off and be cold is what your response is. Uh, and what men think, or what men's wives think of you right now, and you admit it. Uh, but David, now wait a minute. Now, let's get it straight. It is Paul who said, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It's not I who said that. You've got, to keep, you've got to keep the record straight on that. But your actions, your actions are apparently coming forward to other women as if you're a cold individual. You made comment to that. Our Lord Jesus, in His His relationships to the opposite sex the one of gentleness showing love and mercy and I can be gentle I can show love and I can show mercy without touching a woman and David I, I don't want to get into a debate because this is just a suggestion but I want to say to you there is no indication of Jesus taking the initiative in doing that he did allow the woman to wash his feet with the tears and to wipe it with her hair and he did allow her to anoint him for his death and there was a woman who touched him and was healed so there are instances of women who reached out and touched him I wasn't talking just of touch though but more on the counseling a woman that if I come into an office situation and all of a sudden a woman lays her life out and, and it's an opportune time to tell her about Jesus uh, which is a counseling situation do you walk away from don't know, David. I, these are simply suggestions. And I have to say to you, in some of these, you know, I've broken my own suggestions. For example, if a woman comes up and hugs me, I don't push her away. So I don't follow it myself all the time. But I tell you that I try to work at following it. Yeah, there's, there's a line. You don't want to be rude. You don't want to be ugly. Well, there are times when my wife and I have talked to a woman together in the initial stages and then I turn her over to my wife and I drop out of it. I'm not saying you can't do it, guys. I'm just simply saying if you want to stay away from it, these are some things to think about. Yes, Jim. Yeah, and there are a lot of things you can do when think, in situations like that. You can leave the door open. Sure. Or you can say to her, let's go down to the cafeteria and have a cup of coffee. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do if you really have a heart to keep out of trouble. Ready to go on or should we just call it quits? It's 10 o'clock. You want to go on? All right.
Verses 3 to 5 contain the second principle. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Don't withhold sex from your wife or your spouse. Now, guys, I know that this is a problem that generally runs the other direction. (laughs) But I want to say to you that you and your wife ought to sit down and have a very frank discussion over these verses. This is a command. The withholding is only by mutual consent and then for just simply a brief period of time. And the principle is this. Your body does not belong to you. Your body belongs to your spouse. And though the problem generally originates from the other direction, at least in appearance, I think in practice, the buck stops with us. Because, gentlemen, if you act with your wife like an animal and you satisfy your needs at the expense of hers not being met, then you've got no one to blame but yourself. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to her. And you give it to her, not for the purposes of meeting your needs, guys, but for the purposes of meeting her. Her needs. I think it's a tragic mistake when a man uses his wife instead of meeting her needs. Any comments on that before we go to the next principle? Okay, verses 6 to 9 are dealt with under another principle. So let's go on to verses 10 to 16, which contain principle number 3. And under the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. And not that the let, excuse me, and let not the husband put away his wife. But I speak to the rest. Excuse me, I can't read here. But the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but... In verses 10 and 11, he deals with a situation where both are Christians. And he says in verse 11, Don't separate, but if you do, don't remarry. But whatever you do, do not divorce your wife. Then in chapter, in verses 12 to 16, he deals with a marriage where one is a believer and the other is not. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is sanctioning a believer marrying an unbeliever. What he's got here is a a couple who has gotten married. One comes to Christ and the other does not. What happens? And he gives us some suggestions here. He says, first of all, the believer is not to initiate divorce. Secondly, he says that the children are protected by the believing spouse. Verse 14. Then he says, if the unbeliever initiates divorce, the believer isn't bound. Verse 15. Now, I've done a lot of reading and studying on that word bound, and the commentators are divided over what that means. Does it mean that they cannot remarry, or that they can remarry? The most of them, 
would argue that they can separate, but they cannot remarry. And the only grounds for remarriage is Matthew 19.9, and even that is modestly ambiguous, where our Lord Jesus says that only for unfaithfulness or adultery. In either case, know that God hates divorce. He does not sanction it under any circumstance. And when the Pharisees tried to nail our Lord Jesus on that point, he said to them, Gentlemen, God gave you divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not meant to be so. It was never in God's thinking that a man divorce his wife. Period. Now, first, yes. That means that he will permit it under certain circumstances, but it is not the perfect will of God. There's a difference between the perfect will of God and the permissive will of God. If you want to ask God what you're permitted to do, then if your unbelieving wife leaves you, you're permitted to be separated from her. If your wife commits adultery, you are permitted to divorce her. And may even, depending on how you read Matthew 19, 9, remarry. But that is not God's perfect will. That is only His permissive will. That's what I mean by that. Yes? If your unbelieving wife leaves you, well, and gets a divorce, are you free to remarry? That is the question that raises, raises its head here in Matthew, I mean in 1 Corinthians 7. And most commentators say no. <clears throat> Question over here. That is correct. That is right. Now, some of this comes up in the later part of the chapter where you get a little better, a closer feel for what the Bible says regarding the whole, the whole situation of marriage. Yes. As part of the original script. See, Luke, I mean, Matthew 19.9 says that, well, let's take a look at it for a moment. Jesus is speaking, and he says, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. And the question, Charles, is whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication committeth adultery or is it and marry another committeth adultery? In other words, is the marriage included in that except for adultery or is it excluded from except for adultery? It's in the early manuscripts of the Bible. The best, best manuscripts that I'm aware of. That is... Yeah. Yes? Um, I think that this is a good example of where we as men might be asked to counsel women. Uh, a sister in Christ whose husband uh, leaves her or whatever. And going back to the not counseling a woman, then were you talking about just uh, being physically The former. 
18.9, I'm not saying to you to turn her off and say, I'm sorry, you can't counsel you and walk away from her. Just don't get married again. Tonight is to tell you what it says. Now, the application of it is between you and God. Now, you're not going to get me to say to you, I think it's all right for you as a believer to divorce your wife, go ahead and remarry, and skate into heaven without any fear or peril regarding your eternal state. You're just not going to get me to say that to you. Now, you may be right as rain. As a matter of fact, you can go ahead and do that and you may get closer to Jesus in eternity than I'll ever get. And that wouldn't come as a surprise to me. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible expressly prohibits it. Now, if you feel comfortable going against the express commands of God, feel free. I am a coward. There's no way in the world I'm going to try that and feel I'm going to get away with it with God. It's just, I'm, just, I'm not going to live there. And the reason why this is such a hot topic and it comes like a bombshell in our lives is that the world has pushed us and pushed us and pushed us so hard in these areas that to stand fast on the simple statements of the Bible makes you look like an idiot. And so you got a decision. Am I going to follow the commandments of God and look like an idiot? Or am I going to follow... The wisdom of the world. Yes. How do you address the question that some people might have? Then, uh, does this make divorce or adultery an unpardonable sin? Uh, if, if you say that you should never remarry, if you say the Bible says you should never remarry in this situation, I'm saying to you. I'm saying to you, don't get married. And if you want. To get married, you say, now God, I don't think this is really the unpardonable sin. But I really want to remarry. So I think I'm going to go ahead and remarry and just kind of count on it not being the unpardonable sin. I said, feel free. But I'm not going to stand here before you and say, no, that's not the unpardonable sin and therefore you can go ahead and do it and skate around 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. I'm just not going to say that to you guys. I'm saying the risk is all yours. You break the command and the weight of it is on your shoulders alone. Yes? How do you, going back up to like verse 8, how do you weigh that against all the uh, emphasis that the word places on marriage? I mean, does, does this like take precedence to that? And then this, you know, it says, it's best if you don't get married, but if you do, Okay, let me hold off on that because that comes under another principle. That's why I said six through nine will be covered under another principle. Yes, right. Well, what about uh, people that uh, were divorced prior to coming to Christ? Now, would you address that issue? Uh, is it all things will come to, uh, are they still... Uh, My suggestion to anybody who is divorced, don't remarry. Yeah, but that's the guy who was never married. Okay. <laughs> yes. Let me say something to you guys.
if truth is absolute, it's because there is a God who is the only true God who has elected to reveal to us how he thinks or feels about a particular subject. And that revelation becomes, by definition, truth. It is true because, A, he said it, and because, B, we have to give an account to him for what he said as we respond to it. A commandment is worthless unless there is accountability. You will always consider the commandments negotiable if there is not accountability. So, truth is absolute only because there is a judgment. Eliminate judgment and you eliminate the absoluteness of truth. So God says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess and every not by virtue of the fact that I can demonstrate its rightness or that I can logically act the reasonableness of what is being said. If there are two gods in the universe, then truth is divided by true. A two, I mean. Now, guys, if truth resides in the individual, in a totalitarian regime, whereby the guy with the biggest stick bops everybody over, that is, just like little kids. She got the biggest piece of pie, and that's not fair. That consequences of the act. And it is wrong only if I can demonstrate and a big difference between those two. And guys, because it's equality, it is not fair that the rich have money and the poor is of the consequences of the act. And that is the reason why you can cheat on your wife and nobody will complain. You can have a homosexual relationship with another consenting male and nobody will complain. But you bar women from Rotary and they'll throw you in jail. And that's where we are in the good old United States of America. Now, that simply means that those who believe in absolute truth, that is, it is right and fair because not the consequences are negative, not because I can demonstrate that it is wrong, but by virtue of the fact that the sovereign of the universe has declared it to be wrong, I want to tell you, that man looks narrow and bigoted and foolish when the masses have embraced relativity and the two premises for determining right and wrong, that is, equality and the consequences of the act. And so those who stand on the basis of the word of God and say it is wrong because God says it is wrong has got to adjust to living with looking like a fool in the world. None of us enjoy looking like a fool. Therefore, we come to the Bible and say, well, now I know that Paul said that, but he can't possibly mean exactly what he says. And we begin to <clears throat> twist it and wrench it a little bit because we hate the pressure that is put on us as a result of the society in which we live. And you've got to make up your mind, guys. Am I going to live on the basis of the authority of the Word of God or am I going to allow the world to squeeze me into its mold? And there really is no other alternative. And I want to tell you, <laughs> it's going to get tougher. It is not going to get easier. I think I have um, overspent my time and maybe overstayed my welcome. <laughs>